Good morning. Welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. I'm glad you're here. And let's begin, <clears throat> as we uh, usually do, let's begin in silence. We acknowledge that God is present, that God is in us, we are in God. And this unnameable sacred mystery seeks to find expression through who we are and how we live on this planet. Amen. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. I'm not going to take time saying anything except to reintroduce our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff McDonald. Um, he was here a couple of weeks ago. If you've not seen the interview with Jeff, it's it's on the YouTube, and you can go and watch it. And uh, here's Jeff. Just uh, quickly, we we are um, we're changing some of our masking protocols here, and uh, but but one of the things. All of the first floor here is children's Sunday school, and they have not had, some of our children have not had the opportunity to be vaccinated yet, and so I would just, up here is fine, uh, but when you leave, as you get down on the first floor, if you'd mask up again, that would be great, and as you come up, if you'd mask up, that'd be great, but then you can demask uh, if you'd like, or mask if you'd like, uh, but it, it helps out with taking care of the children who have not had opportunity yet to be vaccinated. So we are, uh, we have been so blessed uh, last night and today and now here and this time and tomorrow, or not tomorrow, you'll be on the road to somewhere else tomorrow, uh, to have Dr. Amy Jill Levine with us. Amy Jill is, uh, is the author of a, a long list of books and has a long list of titles and wonderful things. Currently, she's at Vanderbilt at the Divinity School there, and I, I, you can go online and find all that stuff, and I don't want to take a bunch of time from her, so uh, I'm going to say a word of, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pepper us with a first question, because when I looked up uh, bio, I was not aware that you had written children's books. So my first question for you, and then you all can ask some questions, is tell, tell us about um, why count sheep and coins? And you all welcome Dr. Levine. Uh, well, thank you very much. I'm trusting you can hear okay? Um, a number of years ago, I'm in churches a lot. I mean, before COVID, I was in churches pretty much every Wednesday and pretty much every Sunday, Wednesday in Nashville, Sunday on the road somewhere. Um, and when you're in churches, sometimes like there's dead time. You have to do a talk, but then there's like an hour and a half, and it doesn't pay to go back to the hotel. So I usually go to the church library, and I look to see what children are reading. Um, and I've done this in the United States, and all, all over the English-speaking world, South Africa, Australia, throughout the UK. Um, most children's books are pretty awful. Uh, they're either boring, right, or they're scary. Um, and a number of them are also anti-Jewish, so like really bad Pharisees, like you know, Pharisees are like the boogeymen in the closet. The Pharisees might come get you. Um, so I have a friend whose name is Sandy Eisenberg Sasso. She was the first woman ordained by the Reconstructionist Theological Seminary, which is a group, a very liberal group in Judaism. She's a very close friend. And she writes children's books. That's what she does. So I'm lamenting to her. I spend a lot of time lamenting. I think laments are great. It's easier than going to a psychiatrist. It's lamenting. Why have you forsaken me? Why are these children's books not any good? So I said to Sandy, why don't we write a children's book? 
I've got the ideas, because I just published my book on parables. I've got the ideas, you know how to talk to, to three to seven year olds. So we write what we thought was a fabulous book on the three parables in Luke chapter 15, which is the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the two lost kids, because both of these boys have problems. And we called it, Who Counts? So he made it a counting book. You have 100 sheep, one goes missing. That, you can count to 99. You have 10 coins and one goes missing, you can count to 10. If you have two sons, make sure that both of them get counted. So it becomes a counting book, but it's also who counts. Who do we remember to count? Who is discounted, right? Who feels ignored? Um, so we write this book. We think it's fabulous. We can't get a publisher. Um, so my trade press is Harper, Harper One. So I go to the, the Harper One Children's Division. It's Christian evangelical. They're not looking at somebody named Levine or somebody with rabbi in front of their nose. That's not happening. Couldn't even get through the door. So I went to Erdman's, um, which is kind of, it's, it's reformed, right? It's originally Dutch reformed. Um, and they said, well, we really like it, but we can't sell books to parents who, who uh, know that the authors are not Christian because it might confuse the children. And I'm thinking three-year-olds really don't have a strong sense of the Christology of the authors that, we're, that they're reading, right? Um, I went to Fortress Press, which is a, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, because the, he's now retired, but the former acquisitions editor, uh, Neil Elliott, is a New Testament scholar. He's a friend of mine. I said, Neil, I got a kid's book. It's terrific. And Neil said, will you send me the you know, what, 20 pages? But big type. Um, so I sent this thing to the press, and he said, you know, we'll get back to you very soon. And a week goes by, and two weeks go by, three weeks go by, and I haven't heard from him. So I sent him an email, and I said, if I change my name to Mary Margaret, do you think that would help? <laughs> Can't get it through. We, they, everybody agreed that the content was great. They were all worried about two Jews writing this thing. So I'm at, in the halls of Vanderbilt Divinity School, and I'm lamenting again. Right? Oh, it's AJ. She's lamenting again. Get out of her way. Um, and my friend Elizabeth Caldwell, um, who transferred from Garrett, she's Presbyterian, um, uh, no, excuse me, McCormick, said, why don't you call the Presbyterian Church USA? The press is Westminster, John Knox. This may be familiar to some of you who do clergy work. Um, I had just, uh, about a year before, published in a journal called Christian Century. This may be familiar to you, of what liberal Protestants read. An article um, condemning, in a polite way, uh, the Presbyterian Church's USA uh, material on Israel-Palestine. So as I mentioned yesterday, I'm very much concerned about Palestinian statehood, but what I want Christians to do is produce a document to which I can say amen and not something that retreads old anti-Jewish stereotypes in order to make their point. Um, so I didn't think the Presbyterians were talking to me. She said, do it anyway. Uh, I sent the thing to their acquisitions editor. Within two days, we had not only a contract for Who Counts, we had a contract for a second book. We have just published our sixth, and we're working on a contract for the seventh. So the idea is each of the books has, at the end, guidelines for anybody who deals with children, so parents, caregivers, whoever, teachers, to say, here's how you read this book with your children. Here's how you ask your children open-ended questions where there's no right or wrong. But here's how they can step into Have you ever felt that your dad paid more attention to your brother than he did to you? That's the prodigal son, right? Have you ever felt that you were overlooked did your teacher call on other people but not you? Right? So allowing them, did you ever want to wander in a foreign country and, and, and get away and just have a grand time? That's the prodigal son. Did you ever feel that you were doing all the right things and nobody ever said thank you? So they're, they're, they're for adults because the parables were written for adults, but they have nice illustrations, appropriately multicultural. 
Um, and we're hoping that children can now be intrigued by the Bible and interested in the questions the stories ask rather than preached at or bored. So that's how I came to write children's books. I want books with like Greek in the main text and German in the footnotes. Um, and what I'm continually saying is can we throw in an extra word here that they may not know? Like, humongous. You know, words like that. So that's how I came to write children's books. Um, and it's much easier than writing books for adults because you don't have to worry about the footnotes. And it's much harder because every single word counts. Right? So we write and then we try it out on Sandy's grandchildren. Um, these are Christian stories, but they're universal stories. If Jewish people want to read these, it's safe for Jews, it's safe for anybody. You don't have to be a Christian in order to get it. But if you are a Christian, you can actually see, even from these children's books, the depth of the parables and how profound they are and what happens when they just get dumbed down. Comments or questions from you? I'm here for you. What do you want to talk about? Uh, Amazon? Uh, the website for the books is Flyaway Books, which is the children's division of Westminster John Knox. Flyaway Books. But you know, Amazon's always fine. What you got? You get to call on people. These are your people. I'd go this way. <laughs> Nobody belongs to me. Everybody belongs to each other. Oh, wouldn't that be fabulous? Right, if you know people, send in a nomination. Right, I'd also like a MacArthur Genius Grant, and, and <laughs> I would like to be on the Pontifical Biblical Commission. Yeah, I'm just, certain goals. I'm trying, please. Hi, good morning. We were here last night, and one of the, um, something that I just really took away, and I've been just turning in my head, is that in the Bible, you said in the whole Bible, that Jesus is the only person who's referred to as rabbi, teacher. Can you expand on that a little bit more for yeah. the class? It's not even so much the whole Bible. He's the first person in literature to be given that title. So when we get up to rabbinic literature, we've got rabbi this and rabbi that. Well, like we talked last night about Rabban Gamaliel, who has a sick kid, who goes to Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa. So when you get up into rabbinic literature, now you're post about the year 200 or so, the title rabbi becomes a, a, a kind of general title uh, for people who have uh, some sort of legal expertise. So this morning, if you listen to the sermon, we have Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua. And what makes you a rabbi in this rabbinic system is you all play the, by the same rules. So it's kind of like what makes you a lawyer. You have certain type of legal training and you pass the bar exam. Or what makes you a medical doctor, you have certain type of scientific training. Rabbis are like that. So they all agree on here are the basics by which we would make an argument. And then once they have the basics down, then they proceed to make these nuanced arguments. That's not what rabbi means at the time of Jesus, because now we're backing about 150 to 200 years. Um, it comes from the Hebrew word rav, which means great, and that then becomes master. Um, master now is a word that's a problem because of slavery. But if you think of the old British system, you have masters of colleges. Right? So that's how Oxford works. That's how Cambridge works. It's that kind of master. So Rav means my master, my great one. Um, the Gospel of John, um, and I know you're reading through the Gospel of John. In John 20, when Jesus meets Mary Magdalene at the tomb, right? um, and she says to him, Rabuni, Aramaic, my master, my teacher. Okay? Matthew Jesus says, don't call anybody rabbi. We've only got one master. He didn't say anything about calling people priests <laughs> or pastors. 
So that's where it comes from. You can do, thank you for your question. You can do Jewish history by looking at the New Testament. All right, we have a question here. Let me, let me, can I ask and then you can go, Joe? Okay. So uh, last night, AJ, you and Lene and I had a wonderful discussion about um, sort of proof texting um, care for LGBTQI plus people. Yes. And how some texts trump other texts. And can you help us through with how we might have language when we, when we come across more literal or interpreters or how we can have some better language, some better biblical language on that. I kind of thought Maybe. I did that in the sermon. Yeah, you um, did. <laughs> yeah, so how do we talk about this? For 12 years at Vanderbilt, I, ran, I, I founded and then ran something called the Carpenter Program in Religion, Gender, and Sexuality. Why? Because I can read a spreadsheet. So they gave me the endowment off of $2.5 million and said build a program where people who would normally not be in the same room with each other sit and have a conversation. Uh, pro-life, pro-choice. Women's ordination, absolutely not. Revising the Bible to be gender inclusive, absolutely not. Ordaining women, absolutely not. Uh, GLBTQI, when we founded it, was just GL. Right? The letters have expanded. Absolutely not. Uh, divorced clergy, depends upon your denomination. Ab instrumental music in the church, absolutely not. Right? Um, so my job is to broker this. Um, and consequently, uh, because I work in two areas, I work in Jewish Christian relations, so Jews and Christians don't say harmful things about each other. And I work in gender sexuality issues, so people don't get bashed or stones thrown at them uh, because they, their love is toward a person that people in the community think is, is inappropriate. Okay. Um, so I've done a lot of consulting for uh, synods, for bishops groups, um, for uh, Christian educators on how to talk about GLBTQI things. And, and because I'm so straight, I've been, my anniversary was Friday. What am I doing on Friday? I'm coming to Houston. Um, so uh, I've been married 38 years I, to a man. I have two kids, right? I'm, I'm, so I'm safe. And I go to an Orthodox synagogue, which doesn't even ordain women. Um, we play don't ask, don't tell on the other sides. Okay. So I'm, so I'm safe, right? And I'm continuing to argue with my rabbi about this because I think you can belong to a denomination or a system that does not do everything that you want it to do, but you can still fight it from the inside. I think you do that through education. Okay. So here's what I tell people when they ask me to come in. It's a short version. Okay. If you believe that the Bible speaks against same-sex relations, you are probably right. And everybody goes, oh, I should also note, I have testified in child custody cases uh, divorced parents, daddy's gay, mummy doesn't want gay daddy dealing with the kids, right? I come in as the expert witness. Then I go take a shower because family court is just dirty. Um, you're probably right. You're probably right about a, a number of other things that the Bible says. The Bible condemns, commends slavery. Slaves, be obedient to your masters. And it's not a metaphor. It, they're talking about real slaves. Uh, the Bible says, this came out last night, women gain their salvation by bearing children. And most people aren't setting up women to be, you know, uteruses that do their thing and the rest of us is, is irrelevant. <laughs> yes, you are, come to think about it, and Tennessee is right behind you. <laughs> Maybe okay. even worse. Maybe even, uh, God forbid, but so, uh, something else to worry about. And then you can worry about what the Bible says or doesn't say about abortion. Um, however, the Bible has to be interpreted. So even if you know what the Bible says, then it's a question of what does it mean? So questions like, why are these laws there? 
And if it's interpretation, how do you know? Leviticus, I'm in mean, 18 and 20, these are so-called clobber passages. Leviticus says, you male person, like he created the male and female, you male person shall not lie with a man the lyings of a woman. Now, I'm going to use blunt language here. I mean, you, you can handle this. If the text had said, don't put your penis in the following places, then I would know what it meant. But don't lie with a man the way you'd lie with a woman. Well, you can guess what that means, uh, but then you can reinterpret it. There are a group of Orthodox Jews who are doing their best to interpret. Um, the best example I heard of an overread was one who said, if you are two gay men and you are in partnership, gay men one does not treat gay man two as if he's a woman. So don't lie with a man the lines of a woman. If you're going to have sexual relations with another man, recognize that that's a man and don't force that man into the woman's role. Now, did Moses intend that? I don't think Moses wrote the text. But did Moses intend that? I don't think so. But it's not up in heaven and it's not across the sea. The text has been given to us to interpret it. It's one way of looking at it. The other way of dealing with, well, the easiest way of dealing with Leviticus is if you're Christian is to say it's irrelevant. You know, you're not worried about circumcision. You're not worried about the dietary laws. You're not worried about how Jews keep the Sabbath. You're not worried about not mixing linen and wool. Apparently people wear spandex. I mean, so I, if you're not worried about any of those other laws, why would you be worried about Leviticus? But of course, Leviticus is the one law that gets trotted out. Why not love of God and love of neighbor, which comes right in between Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20? It's Leviticus 19, right? Okay. 50 font versus 2 point font. Next. Why is it there? Well, some people say because you don't want to be like the Canaanites. Canaanites are engaging in heterosexual sex. How do we know that? Because they're a little Canaanites. <laughs> so it's not that. Right. And some people said because it's, 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 it's raping, because it happens in war. But raping women happens in war too, so it can't be that. And then, so, oh, you have to keep the population up. Okay. Gay men manage to repopulate. That's how you get gay dads, right? Besides which, you really only need one or two men and, and you know, a good protein diet, and you can keep the population up. <laughs> This is why when Pharaoh decides to kill all the baby boys, that's the stupid move. As long as you have one man, you're good to go. If he were smart, he would have killed the girls. Okay. Um, so you can realize what's, what's going on here. It's probably a sense of categories, this taxonomy. If you've taken a biblical course, this is the priestly writer, and the priestly writer likes things in order, right? Uh, the priestly writer is the one who wrote Genesis 1 where God separates the waters above from the waters below and separates the light from the darkness, right? It's all, you put things in categories. You have the work week and you have the Sabbath. You have the nations and you have the people of Israel. It's all separated. And you do different things. It doesn't mean that one's better than another. You do different things. Leviticus wants men to do manly things and women to do womanly things. This is sort of like saying men barbecue and women bake. It's, it's culture. All these gender roles are culturally conditioned. Women wear women's clothes and men wear men's clothes. Then you have to figure out what counts. Because what counts as men's clothes in Scotland is not necessarily what counts as, or in Greece for that matter, as what counts as men's clothes in, in Texas. Um, <laughs> so the way the law works out is women are the penetratees and men are the penetrators because it's gender roles. Now think about this. If you think gender roles are culturally constructed rather than natural, then why are we paying any attention to this? Okay. Um, by the way, if you think, and here I have to use that sort of language that you have to use when you talk about this stuff. 
If you think it refers to anal intercourse, that's not forbidden between heterosexual couples according to the law code. So it's not about health and it's not about anal tearing. People know what they're doing. Paul, Paul says that same, well, he does, he's not clear. He talks about exchanging natural relations with unnatural. What's an unnatural relation? Unnatural is putting ketchup on ice cream. When Paul talks about nature, he's really talking about culture. Okay? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, does not nature teach you that women should have long hair and men should have short hair? No, go to the zoo. Look at the lions, right? Male lions, female lions, um, peacocks, peahens. Peacock is the right word, by the way. So, so Paul, when Paul talks about nature, he's talking about culture. My mother was born in 1913, Massachusetts. When she went into first grade, so what was that, 1919, 1920, her first grade teacher tied her left hand behind her back because my mother was a lefty. And back then, that was considered to be unnatural. Today, that would be called child abuse. Okay. It is unnatural to open up a womb and operate on a fetus. But we can cure congenital problems because of that. Thank God you can do things that are contrary to nature. And when my friends still say, but it's contrary to nature. If you go a little bit farther in the epistle to the Romans, when you get to Romans 9 to 11, when Paul finally gets around to talk, what about the Jews who didn't sign on to the program? Uh, Paul says, well, you know, you Gentiles, he's writing to Gentiles, don't you boast. Because the, the natural branches of this olive tree have been bent over, leaves a place to graft. And he says the Gentiles, the pagans, as wild olive shoots, have been grafted onto this cultivated tree contrary to nature. It's exactly the same phrase, which means Gentiles gain their salvation by a way that's contrary to nature. Okay. Um, I'll give you one more example of this. Um, again, if you want to say the Bible is against it, you can say that. That's, that's not a bad reading. It doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you a, a close, close to literalist. But that's a legitimate way of reading. Um, I take a page from the Jesus playbook because I think Jesus is way smart. Okay. Um, and he does what the later rabbis do, but he's one of the first ones to do it, at least in terms of historical records. Um, when Jesus gets asked about divorce, right, the Pharisees say to Jesus, can you divorce for any reason? That was the question. Because some of these folks are going for no fault, right? Somebody burned your dish, you see somebody prettier. And others are saying you can only get divorced in cases of adultery, which proves, by the way, that they're not stoning people for adultery, because if they were, you wouldn't have to worry about divorce. Because right, then the, the, the guilty uh, part of the pair would, would be stoned. So they're not doing that. And Jesus says, yes, well, in Deuteronomy, Moses said that. But that's only because of your hardness of heart. Right? We know that you're, but from the beginning, from Genesis, that's not the way God set it out. And that's where you get, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no person separate. Right? Okay. Putting two texts next to each other, Genesis 2 and Deuteronomy, and he's going with Genesis. I think you can do the same thing with Leviticus. Leviticus probably forbids male same-sex relations. Leviticus says nothing about lesbians, by the way, because for the Old Testament to have sex requires a penis. If there's no penis, then by definition, there's no sex, so there's no problem. Um, the rabbis come in later and discover that women are doing things, and then they debate. And some of them are saying, why do you care? And others are saying, you know, it doesn't look nice. Um, but, you know, the, the main thing is men. So in, um, in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, the creation narrative, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was terrific, and God saw that everything is great. 
The Hebrew is tov, like mazel tov. Tov is good. And the first time, I'm in Genesis 2 here, that God says something is not good, lotov. It is lotov. It is not good for the human being to be alone. I will make a helper as his partner. So if God says it is not good for the human being to be alone, why would I condemn somebody on the LGBTQI spectrum to a life of singleness and celibacy? Because it's not good for the human being to be alone. And when Adam and Eve meet, and this whole thing about they become one flesh, that doesn't mean to have sexual intercourse. All right. My husband and I are one flesh. At this moment, we are not having sex, because if we were, you would know. <laughs> and it would be much harder for me to lecture. It means you form a new family unit. So you're no longer, you the male person and you the woman person, are no longer son of or daughter of. Your primary relationship now is the married couple. That's what to become one flesh is. So that when Adam and Eve, the text is that Adam and uh, they cleave together. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. Side note, cleave is one of those words that means itself in the opposite, like cleavers. So cleave means to separate, but cleave can also mean to, I love things like that. Anyway, Adam and Eve cleave, right? That's exactly what Ruth and Naomi do. So after we get the whither thou goest, I will go speech, and, I, and Ruth cleave to Naomi, they become a new family unit. That's what it means. So it's not defined by sexuality, it's defined by here's, here's the partner that I want, and here's the person with whom I'm gonna spend the rest of my life. There are other ways of taking that, but here are just a few of them. Does that sort of get to where we were? Here, and then Tom, I'll come get you. Um, hey. I, I don't think that I'm the only one in the room that just feels like after you've been here, I've been in a blizzard. <laughs> <clears throat> a blizzard of words. And uh, is it possible to just draw a line under what you've said and say this? sums it up I mean um, no well no. Uh, how about we're to take this book seriously but not literally that works except in some cases there are certain passages you might want to take literally um, love your neighbor as yourself I think I think you do that it's not an abstract category. Love your neighbor as yourself, by the way, by the way, by the way, in Leviticus means love your fellow Jew. But that's Leviticus 19. But if you go up about 20 verses, um, 1918, love the stranger who dwells among you because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Which means you love some, you love your neighbors who do what like neighbors would be say fellow Methodists, right? Where you have certain rights and responsibilities. So if you're a member of this church, there are certain things that you can do that I cannot, like, I mean, I suppose I could, like, sign up for the, the hospitality thing, the happy hour. What a great idea. <laughs> Methodist, who knew? Um, <laughs> gotta love this church, right? Um, uh, so love the stranger means don't force somebody to be like you, not to believe like you, not to have the same cultural habits that you do. But you were strangers in the land of Egypt, and you know what it's like, you know what it's like to be an alien. So respect who you are in your difference and still be loved. I take that literally. So that's the problem. What do you, what's science and what's po physics and what's poetry? What do you take literally and what do you think, and yeah, love your, yeah, love your neighbor as yourself, fine. Gospel of John, you know, uh, follow Jesus on the way of the cross. Luke says the same thing. Well, what does that mean? 
It means that what you believe is so important, you'd be willing to give up your life for it. And most people don't think about those things. Pearl of great price. So I'll go parables because I like parables. Pearl of great price, among other things, says when is enough enough and when do you start being acquisitive? And when have you finally found that that so fully satisfies you that is so, Stoics would say, the rest is adiaphora. doesn't matter. That's literal stuff. Because it, oh, it lands. Here's a question. Hey, Tom. I have to admit, I'm feeling pretty anxious about asking this question. Um, you know, um, this, this class is uh, about biblical literacy. Uh, this church stands for that. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned in your opening comments um, lament, mm -hmm. and I resonated with that. One of the strongest laments of my life now, and I think many of us in this room, is um, how biblical illiteracy has been taken to a level of great power and influence in our country, um, leading a division of our country like we've not known in our lifetime and probably not since the Civil War. And um, so I'm wondering your thoughts on how could those who advocate for biblical literacy, like you and people in the academics and in the other areas of leadership in mainline religions, have a stronger voice of unity to speak out, to be heard <clears throat> over the noisy din of illiteracy uh, that is taking over and some think driving uh, Christian nationalism in this country yeah. to be dominant. Yep, thank you for that. Um, boy, I wish I had the easy answer. They, uh, that's above my pay grade. Um, and what's exacerbating the problem is the internet and the easy access to what you want to read. So all the formulas, if you, if you click on something, then you get clickbait and you're gonna wind up in an echo chamber. And people generally refuse to read folks that, that disagree with them. Right? Um, now in Tennessee, we've got conflict over whether we can have the book Mouse, which is a graphic novel um, in, in public school systems because one of the illustrations is, is of the author's mother who, commit, who was in the Shoah and then committed suicide. And they said, but it's a naked body. It's a mouse, you know, it's a cartoon. right? Um, so we're going to have problems like that. And a number of people of very, very good will, um, including some friends of mine who were on school boards, are now no, no longer running. And the most liberal person in the Nashville School Board has announced she's not going to run again because of the protests on their lawn and the negative notes, because we have no civility. Right. So how do we get it back? It can't be done nationally, because there's no leader here who's going to be able to make us do it. Obama couldn't do it. Biden can't do it. Um, I can't figure in, Mitt Romney, I don't think is gonna do it, right? And who knows if Mr. Trump is gonna run again? Yes, well, one tries to be polite. Because, um, cause you, you know, so here's the problem, you don't wanna demonize the person on the other side, right? Um, but one-on-one, -on -one, that can sometimes be enough. The country, the state, 
the city, but I can come into this church and for two hours, I can be with people who do not agree with me theologically and we can have a civil conversation and I can be inspired by what you do. So that's how I get through is it's a one-on-one -on -one thing. And if people of good intent can engage people who are not, and it's sometimes you don't wanna beat your head against the wall, but you simply say, here's what I feel and here's what I think and here's why I think that. And if somebody says, well, don't let facts get in the way, then you move on. So there's no easy fix here. We are in a mess. The fact that you are all here suggests that not everybody's in a mess. And then you move on, do your best. I wish I had something more profound. I don't, it's stuff I worry about. Somebody asked me an easy question. <laughs> Anyone else? You mean you've answered everybody's question? Um, there, last night, somebody asked me if I would tell a story that I wrote about. I can end by telling my story. If that would work, can I tell a story? Yeah, absolutely. We love stories. All right, I'll tell a story. Um, so far, everything that I've done with you, um, technically from the Bible is history. You know, it's based on the text within its original context, and then making arguments at least based on the wording of the text, even if the text doesn't say it. Um, my student, a number of my students are quite conservative. I actually retired from Vanderbilt in August. I retired from Vanderbilt on August 15th. And on August 16th, I took a new job at what was Hartford Seminary, is now Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. And what Hartford does, it's in Connecticut, what it does is it specializes in Jewish, Christian, Muslim dialogue. Because I thought it would be important to be in that environment for a year. And all I have to do is go to Connecticut in June. I have to go to Connecticut in June for one month to teach an intensive course, which you can take online. So if you want, I'm doing a course on parables, so if you want to read parables with me in June, just go to the Hartford International University website or my Facebook page and you can see how to register. Okay. Um, my students at Vanderbilt and my students before that at Duke, Duke, Duke Blue, um, and my students at Swarthmore were very concerned that I was going to hell because I am not baptized and I don't believe, I don't worship Jesus as Lord and Savior. So I don't call on Jesus. And every once I'll go, Jesus, but you know. Because <laughs> you do. Um, so I made up this story. So here's my story about how to get non-Christians into heaven. Um, after a very, very long and happy life, I die. Uh, my former dean, the dean who hired me at Vanderbilt, Joe Huff, once referred to me as insufficiently indirect, um, which I think I want on my tombstone. <laughs> This is Amy Gillivine, 1956 to whatever, in, insufficiently indirect. Um, I get to heaven. So there's a line, because there's always a line, but it moves quickly. And at the front of the line, there are pearly gates, but the pearly gates are wide open, because heaven's not a gated community. <laughs> and standing at the pearly gates is St. Peter. You can tell, because he's got a little rock insignia on his lapel. Because his real name isn't Peter. His real name is Simon, son of Jonah. And Jesus says to him, you are Petros, Peter, and on this Petra, rock, I will build my church. So his real name really ought to be St. Rocky, but that didn't work. Okay, so St. Peter. So it's Peter, I was like, wow, because I'm a Bible scholar and I've got questions. Like, can you read? Um, what happened to your wife? Because Jesus heals your mother-in-law and we never see, what happened to your wife? Uh, who won the food fight that you and Paul had in Antioch? Because we've only got Paul's side of the story. Right? Um, where did you wander off to in the middle of the book of Acts? Right? Were you really crucified upside down? Because that's post New Testament. Peter says, look, lady, I'm on duty right now, but you can get your harp and your halo over here and you get your wings and your slippers at the next table. I'm off to go find the Blessed Virgin, right? However, standing behind me in this line is a fellow who in his earthly incarnation was a television evangelist. 
You've got them here. We've got them in Tennessee. You can tell. Perfect hair. <laughs> Perfect teeth. The crease in the pants, so precise you could get a paper cut. And he has managed to find in the heavenly antechamber, because there are lots of books there, uh, the Quran is there, the works of Mary Baker Eddy are there, the Bhagavad Gita is there. Um, like the Reader's Digest condensed is under lock and key, you can't get it, the message is under lock and key. But I mean, they're there, you can ask. And he has managed to find a le red letter King James version of the Bible. I'm trusting you've seen these, right, with Schofield references in the margins. Um, it's one of those leather things that you can flop in the pulpit. And he's got his text open to John chapter 14. And he is becoming apoplectic. And he says to Peter, Peter, sir, Mr. Apostle, I'm really sorry to make trouble my first day in heaven. However, I have seen this woman. I have seen her on TV. She's thinner in person. But I have seen her on TV. And I know she really likes Jesus. And I know she takes the New Testament seriously. But she's not baptized. And she doesn't worship Jesus as Lord and Savior. So pardon the expression, what the hell is she doing in heaven? And Peter says, Oi, Gewalt, wait. <laughs> Comes back a couple of minutes later with a fellow who's my height. I'm five, four and a half. Um, olive complected, dark eyes that look like they're coming right into your soul, and holes in his palms, because the Gospel of John says the resurrected Jesus still bears the wounds of the cross. That's the doubting Thomasine. And now I've got questions like, can you read? Right? But clearly, the, this is not the time. And Jesus says, what is it, my son? And give this guy credit for his convictions. He's going for it. He says, Lord, all my life I have preached the gospel. All my life I have baptized people. All my life I have brought folks to the church. Because as you say right here in John chapter 14, you are the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by you. And I don't understand. And Jesus responds in a very patient voice. Yes, well, the gospel of John does have me saying that. That's very carefully phrased. The Gospel of John does have me saying that, but if you flip back over to the Gospel of Matthew, the parable of the sheep and the goats, I make it very clear that it's not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of the Father. Then, by the way, I have to tell my Jewish students, if you're in heaven and there's a sheep line and a goat line, get into the sheep line. Don't ask any questions, just get into the sheep line. <laughs> it seems to me, says Jesus, that my daughter AJ has done the best she can with the talents that she's been given. So feeding the hungry, which I try to do, uh, visiting people in prison. And until COVID, I was working at Riverbend Maximum Security Institute, which is where our death row is located. And I've been teaching out there, bringing Vanderbilt students to Riverbend and meeting with insider students. So check that one off. Um, I say she gets in. The fellow says that's works righteousness. You're saying she earned her way into heaven. And Jesus says, no, my son, go back to John chapter 14, where I make it clear that I am the way, not you. And you're not your narrow sense of salvation and not your constipated sense of mercy. I say she gets in. Do you want to argue? And the last thing I recall seeing before going off to get my heavenly accessories is Jesus handing the man a Kleenex to help get the log out of his eye. So how does this translate? If the Christian wants to make Jesus the gatekeeper, then let him do his job. I don't think that's the way it's going to work. But if it does... The Jesus I understand from history is going to be infinitely more concerned about how I love my neighbor and how I welcome the stranger than he is about the particulars of whether I agree with the Nicene or Apostles' Creed. Just do a good thing and the rest of it takes care of itself. And then when people say, but AJ, if you just looked at the Old Testament, you'd see how it points to Jesus, which it does. 
because the authors of the New Testament knew the Old Testament and they're finding in their scriptures something new in light of Jesus, perfectly normal. But if you look at those very same passages through the eyes of rabbinic lenses, they point to a whole lot of other things. Okay? So belief is not a matter of logic. It's not a matter of co connecting the dots. Belief is not like Sudoku. I'm good at Sudoku. Give me a pencil with an eraser. I can crack even the most difficult ones. It's just a matter of logic. Belief is like love. And love is not something you choose. Love is something that chooses you. When you fall in love with somebody, generally you don't do it on the basis of cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> you know, went to Dartmouth, looks like he's a decent person. I think I'll marry him. Right? So you do that. I've seen the people my children have dated. God. You know, <laughs> what makes sense to one person doesn't make any sense to another. And I do not believe in a God that would condemn me because my love is placed in the synagogue rather than in church, because that's where it is. So let Jesus be the gatekeeper if you're a Christian, but let him do his job. And I think he'll do a pretty good job of it. Thank you. So uh, we are going to let Dr. Levine go so that she can take a break before her next assignment at 11 o'clock. Uh, thank you for being here. I hope you come back. Uh, those of you who are not usually here on Sunday for Ordinary Life next week, um, we're going to introduce kind of a new theme called How to Embrace the Things That Scare You As Things Fall Apart. Steal those words from Pima Children, put them together. Uh, so I hope you come back next week. And remember this, no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, watch your step because you carry precious cargo. Thank you for being here. Bye.